This is the second of three podcasts exploring the use of sound in cinema. All too often we are told that film is a visual medium. It is not, and has not been since Alan Crossland, the jazz singer, was released in 1927. Since then, sound has been half the picture. However, the way we receive sound, even in real life, it very often goes unnoticed. So much so that if you mention great sound design, thoughts automatically go to any number of Michael Bay's films. The Transformers franchise, Armageddon or Pearl Harbor, perhaps William Freakin's The Exorcist, or even Brian De Palma's Blowout, where one of the characters actually collects sound. But I wish to examine less obvious, perhaps more indirect choices. This second podcast explores how sound can add to the story's emotional and thematic textures. The thing about film sound is that it does not have to be an accurate report of the noise the object would produce in real life. Which explains the inaccurate cliches, such as every time someone is typing on a computer, there are two sounds heard for every one key that is struck. Similarly, audiences are conditioned to expect the squeak of tyres every time a car takes a bend at high speed, even if that bend happens to be on a dirt track. Likewise, explosions never happen once. And finally, gunfire always, always, always booms. In real life, it just cracks. And as for the bullets, they travel very slowly. But only when they miss, because the ricochet takes place about a half a second after the gunshot is fired. Sorry, boomed. Why? Because film grammar has nothing to do with real life. It only relates to what feels real. Which means that sound editors and designers are always looking for new ways to enhance, subdue, subvert, redefine, and penetrate our emotional walls. As mentioned in the previous episode, specific sounds can elicit specific emotional responses. The thing is, though, that most of us only notice the sounds when they are unusual, special, digital. Sounds we don't ordinarily expect to hear. Take, for example, Robert Zemeckis' 1997 adaptation of Carl Sagan's novel Contact. The film is filled with exciting sounds, not least of which is the opening two minutes. But those are human-made sounds, ordinary. I mean, we've all heard them before. Pop songs and news reports stretching into our past, all the way back to the 1930s. Sounds that have drifted out into the universe, deep into the darkest, most silent recesses of the cosmos. But then, the sounds that we hear back are meta-ordinary, beyond ordinary, extraterrestrial ordinary. And that sound sounds like this sound. Now, we're not more than 25 feet away. Uh, Can you hear it now? Uh, Professor Pearson? Yes, sir. Can you tell us the meaning of that scraping noise inside the thing? Possibly the unequal cooling of its surface. I say, do you still think it's a meteor, Professor? I don't know what to think. The uh, metal casing is definitely extraterrestrial. Uh, Not found on this Earth. Friction with the Earth's atmosphere usually tears holes in a meteorite. This thing is smooth and... You can see it's cylindrical shape. Something's happening. Ladies and gentlemen, this is terrific. The 1938 radio broadcast of Orson Welles' adaptation of H.G. Welles' The War of the Worlds. 
Of course, contact frequently foregrounds the sounds because that is the medium by which we first receive an intelligent signal from outer space. But I wish to focus on everyday sounds that focus on not endless space, but a very confined one. Just as Greek tragedians had all violence take place off stage, sometimes it is the sudden emergence of silence that best exemplifies the use of sound. Joseph H. Lewis pulled that trick, albeit very briefly, during the torture sequence in The Big Combo. Roman Polanski did something similar in Repulsion. And Robert Brasson's A Man Escaped is a prime example of such storytelling. Set in World War II, it is adapted from the writings of André Devigny, who was captured by the Nazis while fighting with the French resistance. Brasson changed Devigny's name to Fontaine, and for long stretches in the story, Fontaine, played by François Leterrier, is confined to his own prison cell. With nothing but four walls and a small barred window, from which to visualise Fontaine's situation, Bresson paints the outside world with the assistance of sound designer Pierre-André Bertrand. As we observe Fontaine, as he plots his way out of the prison, Bresson sets himself the restrictive task of telling the story exclusively from Fontaine's point of view. He is in every scene, so we only know what he knows. For the most part, Bresson's camera remains objective. But there are times when Bresson inserts subjective shots so we see the minor yet crucial details of Fontaine's shrunken world. A close-up of Fontaine as he is put in handcuffs. Close-ups of notes handed back and forth amongst the prisoners. And most memorably, a close-up of Fontaine using the handle of a spoon to gnaw away at the wood panel of the door to his prison cell. But no matter whether we are looking at Fontaine or looking at what Fontaine is looking at, the one constant that never changes is the sound. It is all subjective. We hear it as Fontaine hears it. Footsteps, echoes, scratches, and lost conversations that create an audio environment to conjure up a world outside the walls. A world to which Fontaine must return. And without hearing it, he would have no proof that it is still there. Down through the decades, the delivery of sound has dimensionalized cinema in ways never possible through cinematography. Warner Brothers' Vitaphone facilitated the first talkie, The Jazz Singer, released in 1927. In 1955, Orkeo Pictures used the Todd A.O. magnetic soundtrack system for the release of the musical Oklahoma. Warner's struck another first when, in 1971, they premiered the Dalby A. noised high production with a clockwork orange. And three years later, Warner's released the first film in Dolby Stereo with Listomania. But technological imagination is nothing without artistic imagination. So fortunately, there have been generations of films that have used sound in an expressive manner. The obvious one would be Citizen Kane, with Orson Welles importing his experience from his radio broadcasts to create sound caverns with deep echoes and overlapping dialogue. Have asked me to remind you again, Mr. Thompson, yes. the Another great practitioner was Federico Fellini. Mention Fellini and most audiences will immediately think of fantastical or surreal images. Anita Ekberg wading through a fountain, Marcello Mastroianni trapped in a traffic jam, or an enormous ocean liner slipping past a seaside town. But there is one thing that links almost all of Fellini's films, and it is this. 
In fact, I've lifted all those winds from The White Sheik, Ivi Tilone, La Strada, Knights of Cabiria, La Dolce Vita, Eight and a Half, Juliet of the Spirits, Satyricon, Roma, Amacord, and Casanova. So why did Fellini use the wind? What did it mean? Depending on the context, it expressed frustration, loneliness, sadness, desperation, freedom, sanity, anger, fear, desire, nostalgia, and in the case of Casanova, impotence. In fact, I can't think of another director who manipulated a single sound to such a varied and profound effect as Fellini did with the wind. To more fully appreciate just how profound Fellini's use of sound was, we need to acknowledge that sound, when used effectively, can suggest things that are not on screen. In other words, it makes us see things that are not there. Because even when you're looking, you can't see the wind. No, that is the dust. Grass swaying back and forth. Or leaves in the trees. But the wind? So when you hear the wind in a Fellini film, he is presenting us with the character's mental or emotional state. In other words, you can paint with sound. Ask anyone to name a regular collaborator of the Coen brothers and chances are that cinematographer Roger Deakins will be mentioned first. After that, probably composer Carter Burwell. And if someone is in a jocular mood, you may hear the name of editor Roderick James. But someone who must always be credited is their sound editor and designer, Skip Leavesay. Leavesay has worked on 16 of their 17 features. And besides collaborating with the siblings, Leavesay's subtle ear has also graced the films of Tim Burton, Jonathan Demme, Terence Malick, Alfonso Cuaron, Spike Lee and Martin Scorsese. The sound I want to focus on is from the Cones adaptation of Cormac McCarthy's novel No Country for Old Men. It is heard during the exchange between Anton Chigur, played by Javier Bardem, and the elderly gas station proprietor, played by Jean Jones. The scene gives us three close-ups, two of them of the tossed coin, and the other is of the sweet wrapper Chigur places on the counter. Given Chigur's homicidal personality, we know he is only too eager to dispatch his victims at the merest of whims. And in this conversation, he is just itching to kill again. But the proprietor is either too civil to push back against Chigurh's aggression, or he is just extremely lucky that the coin lands in his favour. But that sound... That is the sound of Chigurh's mind as it twists and turns on itself, trying to find the moment, the comment, that will permit him to kill again. It's more than just his mind, it is his body as well. His muscles contracting and flexing in tension and frustration that he has been unable to prompt an appropriate response which would justify to himself his fatal intention. It is great design because it takes an everyday sound and makes it expressive, turns it into a metaphor for something we cannot see, the mechanics of a murderous mind. The next podcast in this series will focus on how music can add to the thematic concerns of the story.